0: publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. Voting is a crucial part of life in a representative democracy. Citizens get a chance to directly influence who makes up their government from the local school board, to the President of the United States. But what happens when the election system is attacked by a foreign power or a disgruntled domestic agent? How can Hoosiers trust that a candidate has been fairly elected? What can the federal government do? And will the state be ready to protect this year's elections? We're going to talk about all those issues today on Noon Edition. We have two guests with us in the studio. Marjorie Hershey is a professor of political science at Indiana University. And Scott Shackelford is senior fellow at the Center for Applied Cybersecurity Research at Indiana University. And both have been on the program. We welcome you both back. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: If you want to join us today, the phone numbers are 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join us at news at org. You can send us your questions or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So really glad to have both of you today. This is a big issue heading into the midterm elections. It was a big issue in 2016, obviously. Um, Scott Shackelford, mm-hmm. uh, how worried should we be about the security of our election system?
2: We should be worried, but not worried enough that we don't go out and vote, because there's concrete steps we've already taken to do a better job in 2018 than we did in 2016. For example, we didn't even have a platform to share cyber threat information between local election officials across the country in 2016. We do now. That's not enough, but that's one step we've taken to help build some confidence. Mm-hmm.
0: And, what, and Margie, what about you? How, how, how much faith do you have in the system?
1: I have faith that we're going to try very hard to deal with the rather large number of issues that we have to deal with. Uh, I think the the issues that Scott has mentioned are extremely important, but we have a whole bunch to talk about beyond that that mm-hmm. have to do with registration rolls, voter purges, voter identification requirements, uh, citizenship paper requirements, and and so on.
0: Could one of you, uh, you know, either one of you, bring bring us up to speed on? Uh, where we are on the investigation in the 2016 election? I mean, I, I you know is there is there much that we that has been sort of is generally known now about the hacking in the election? Is there anything that's really known about the impact of whatever hacking occurred,
2: Scott? Well, it's really tough to know what the impact of those emails coming out really were at the end of the day, as well as the Russian bots on Facebook. We can make educated guesses, but that's all they are. Um, we know at this point there's been public reporting that, indeed, DNC was hacked. We know the emails were out there. Um, we know that it did have some – it helps sway some voters most likely. But unfortunately, we just don't have a good sense for – what that's going to look like going forward, right, and how we can do a better job at getting a handle on these social networks to make sure that the information we all rely on to make educated decisions about our leaders are as accurate as possible. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, I think it's important to say that um, I've had a number of people come up to me and say, well, um, is there any evidence that President Trump won as a result of hacking and um, my concern is, you know, did a crime occur if it didn't result in the criminal actually getting something? I mean, you know, we do have a variety of crimes of attempted this and attempted that. I think it's criminal to try to attack an election system even if you don't succeed. Mm-hmm. So Mm -hmm. Trump
3: this week said, just looking ahead to 2018, he said that if Russians were going to try to hack the system this year, that he said they might try to help the Democrats. Is there any
1: proof of that? No. No. None (laughs) none whatsoever. I mean, you know, just a week earlier, as uh, the president may recall, he was in a news conference in which Vladimir Putin said that he favored Trump prior to the 2016 election. Now, it may be that he's awoken one morning and, and uh, suddenly realized that his views have changed, but I think it's pretty likely that he's going to continue to favor Trump from now on.
3: So something that was on NPR this morning, and ever, it's all over the place now, but Senator Claire McCaskill, Missouri, mm-hmm. who is considered very, very vulnerable, just like um, Joe Donnelly, Um but her, her election system, or I'm sorry, her servers were attempt, somebody attempted to t- hack those in 2017. So maybe you can explain a little bit about what kind of hacking, how does that, how does that work? How sophisticated is this?
2: Right. So oftentimes it's not very sophisticated, like we saw with McCaskill and like we saw with John Podesta in 2016. So the reason that Podesta's emails were compromised was because he got a phishing email that looked like it was coming from a Gmail account. It wasn't even a good phishing email, but he got the advice, oh, you should really reset your password, and he did, and the rest is history. So the future of the free world could be the result of somebody clicking on a link they shouldn't have, right? McCaskill as well. Um, Similarly, phishing scheme wasn't successful, uh, but that just goes to show you don't have to have a lot of expertise to be successful at targeting these candidates and to breaking into these systems, right? Because there are so many entry points. There are so many staffers. There are so many candidates across the country. You mentioned McCaskill, but also several other congressional campaigns have also been targeted. We know of our ready.
3: So those are the same kind of things that Bob and I
2: get right. to our emails. Yeah. Right, right. And some are very targeted. Maybe they rely on some local information that about your friends or about your networks to make it really look pretty plausible. But maybe if you're getting it at 430 or at noon on a beautiful day like it is in Bloomington, maybe you're not going to pay so much attention to it and you're going to click on that link. That's what they're hoping for. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So Margie, is there, I mean, are there historical press precedents for you know um, agents of other governments trying to mess with our elections and, and i think I think it would be um, I, I mean i 'm under the assumption that the u s government has probably done some of this in other nations as well.
1: Sure, it's an awful lot easier when we've got email and the internet. Um, but obviously, we've had preferences about different nations' leadership over time, and we have done a lot to try to enforce those preferences. Does that mean, is the argument then, that it's okay for anybody to try to do that to us? Well, no. Um, <laughs> just as, you know, you can hear all the parents of middle school kids saying, well, if all your friends did X, is that a good reason for you to do X? Democracy is a pretty important thing, and it's not something that we can necessarily count on continuing in a self maintaining way. Democracies don't self maintain they have to be maintained by the people who have them. And if we assume, well, if we did it in the past, you know, maybe even if we're doing it now, sure, let's invite France to come in and, and hack our elections. Let's ask our Canadian enemies to come in and, and uh, hack our elections. No, that's a really terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Um, I was wondering just a little bit. So, In 2000, we had the whole issue with hanging chads.
2: The good old days. Right?
3: So I feel like that was the time that we sort of thought, ooh, is our election system really secure? Mm -hmm. And after that, from what I understand, there was money that was really put into upgrading our systems. But have there been upgrades since then, or are we essentially operating with – almost 20-year-old equipment.
2: (laughs) Right. So, believe it or not, Congress did pass a law after that called the Help America Vote Act back in 2002, and that did result in appropriations of several billion dollars to help states upgrade their election systems across the country. And that's great, but technology moves on. It doesn't maintain itself just like democracy doesn't maintain itself, right? So as a result, we're still running voting machines with Windows XP across the country. That hasn't been updated since 2014. So there have been trials where people can actually drive by and hack into these systems. You don't have to be physically there. There was a team at the University of Michigan who actually were invited <laughs> to break into D.C.'s voting <laughs> systems, and they had the University of Michigan fight song playing every time a vote was cast. Um, I, so, I love
1: that, actually. Oh, I, my gosh, right? Well, well it's I think it's fascinating because um, the the ability to keep up with changes in uh, electronic technology is just really very challenging I write a textbook about political parties and uh, each edition I have a box that indicates some of the funnier things that have happened in terms of screw-ups in elections over time and uh, they they really get to be be very interesting like you know the time in California where one ballot only appeared in Vietnamese you know and uh, (laughs) another one in Washington D.C. where a couple of the election administrators couldn't figure out how to turn on the voting machines and they were embarrassed about it so they hid them they put them behind (laughs) a curtain and said (laughs) they hadn't been delivered pay no attention (laughs) (laughs) we we learned a lot in 2000 Mm -hmm. uh, That we didn't know before. I had mentioned before we went on that political scientists have long understood that when we do um, random probability sampling with respect to public opinion polls, Gives us an excellent view of what public opinion is within certain parameters with a certain margin of error. Until 2000, I had never thought of elections as having a margin of error, but quite obviously they do. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a sobering thought. Mm -hmm.
0: Well. This, I guess this is my time to just apologize to Jim Allison who may be listening today because <laughs> Jim Allison uh, is a very active uh, local person and he, he probably 15 years ago – uh, was critical of Monroe County's voting system because it was going to be all electronic. He was really pushing for a paper trail, and mm-hmm. I remember writing an editorial back then about how, oh, come on, we're in the 21st century now, and we don't need to go back to voting on paper. And I'm kind of feeling like I was really wrong. Mm. Should we – I mean, it, it is are we almost at the place where we would be better off going back to just have paper ballots that could be checked and, and double-checked or some kind of paper trail? Scott –
2: Yeah, uh, indeed we would be, right? We do need mandatory paper trails of the kind we don't have in in Indiana. We're not alone in that. Pennsylvania, 47 of the 67 counties in Pennsylvania, have electronic voting machines with no paper trail requirement, right? Um, So in these critical swing states, that makes it really tough to conduct the type of post-election audit, the risk-limited audit that uh, Professor Hershey just mentioned. And by the way, we're not alone in going back to paper. Still, to be clear, it's the case here in the U.S. that more than 70 percent of the ballots cast are on paper or there's paper involved at some point in the process. Optical scan, paper ballots, that kind of thing. But when you look around the world for what it's worth, other countries are going back to paper. Germany used to have electronic voting machines. They're back to paper ballots. Brazil, back to paper ballots, right? The only country we identified in a study we did called Making Democracy Harder to Hack a couple years ago uh, that's going the other direction and putting more faith in technology is Estonia. Uh, they're relying on blockchain, all kinds of cool stuff in their elections. But keep in mind, it's a country with a population the size of San Diego, and early tech savvy wanted that. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's important for people to realize that when you have an electronic voting machine that has no paper trail, a recount consists of pressing the button to produce the result a second time. That's the only recount you can have. You can just get the same result you did before.
0: Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound very... Um, hmm. Very effective. So so you you got one result. You punch the button again to make sure that you're reading it right. Mm -hmm. right? That's what you're saying? Yeah,
1: Mm -hmm. yeah,
3: exactly. Does Indiana – is there a system of auditing the elections?
2: So the county chairman uh, can elect to have elections audited after the fact. uh, But no, there's no mandatory statewide audit here in Indiana. That needs to change. Mm -hmm. All
0: right. We're going to go to the phones. We have a phone call, and it's Owen calling. Owen? Owen?
2: Thanks, Bob. Mm -hmm. This is a question about what I would call targeting. Um, The Russians wouldn't have much effect in Bloomington, which is so blue, or in Indiana generally, which is so red. Um, But is it possible that the uh, Russians uh, would be targeting specific areas um, that might be uh, close in one way or another, and Margie, I'd particularly be interested in hearing your response.
1: Well, I think Scott has an excellent response to that, too, which is that, you know, the Russians uh, would presumably do the same thing that the political parties and the campaigns do, and that's to put their efforts where they're most likely to bear fruit. Um, and there are going to be a lot of very close Senate elections this year, and the Senate is critical with respect to what happens in the next two years. Mm-hmm. Scott, do you yeah.
2: No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it would look pretty fishy if all of a sudden you know California turned red or something like that. But if you do focus on those core uh, swing counties, those core swing suburban areas, um, you can have an outsized impact. And that includes targeting not just electronic voting machines in those areas, but tabulation systems, local media coverage, uh, critical infrastructure, more generally snarling traffic, crashing the websites where people go to figure out where their polling places are, all that stuff.
0: I, I heard you talk about that on on Barbara's story this morning. Ring on NPR mm-hmm. and, and can you say a little bit more about that about the these things that that you know they aren't about how I vote but it's whether I can get to where I want to vote and
2: so it's a classic parade of horribles, it's called. What are all the ways that we can do if we put on our blackest of black hats to really mess with our democracy, right? And this came from that project I mentioned a couple years ago. And to their credit, the Belfour Center at Harvard's continued this since then. It has a really good guide out now for local election officials. So you can do a lot of things. You can target the information that we rely on to make informed decisions. That's where Facebook and Twitter and all those bots come in, right? You can go after the voting machines. You can go after the tabulation system. So the software that's used to actually count up the ballots. Um, the Netherlands was so concerned about this last year that they actually went and hand-counted every ballot that was cast in that election. They didn't have any faith in the software that was used. You can also hack into the news feeds that are actually reporting results in real time. So if you do that in a country with multiple time zones, like this one, that can impact turnout across the country. There's no evidence that that happened, to be clear, in 2016, but it has happened in other countries, like Ukraine, right? And shockingly, I know that this was caught only a couple hours before Barack Podcasts, but the only station that went with the fake results was a pro Russia uh, station. So, that the idea, the model is out there. And if we want to see what's coming on the pipeline, frankly, Ukraine's been a test bed for some time. So, we should take a close look at
1: that. Mm-hmm. We've uh, seen for a long time that the concept of impedance is important in voter turnout. Remember, we have among the lowest voter turnouts of any industrial democracy in the world, so uh, affecting the extent to which the turnout on one side or the other um, increases is really critical for election results. We know that when it takes longer for people to get to the polls, when there are more stoplights, when there are more stop signs, when they have to cross a bridge, when various other things happen, they're less likely to turn out. And we know that residential areas can be fairly highly segregated in terms of partisan preference. So uh, just simply knocking out um, red lights in a in a series of areas that are known to favor one party or the other could make a real difference. Now, it would take a big effort in order to do that in a lot of areas, but you don't need to do it in a lot of areas when we've got a Senate in which every – Seat is going to make a difference. I know I'm probably, you know, we're we're probably frightening the devil out of everybody who's <laughs> listening here.
2: But, uh, <laughs> Enjoy the beautiful day. Right, right. But, you
1: know it, it, what? One thing we do uh, in a in a productive way when we're frightened is to figure out what could go wrong and then stop it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you mentioned that that uh, might not be of uh, particular interest for you know Russians to hack Indiana I assume you're meaning maybe in 2016 but in 2018 we have a Senate race that's yeah. supposed to be fairly tight here right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. yeah mm-hmm. yeah so Indiana might be a recipient of one of those efforts
2: Certainly. And not just from Russia, keep in mind. Yes. They were one of the main antagonists, obviously, in 2016, the main. But looking ahead,
0: there were others. There
2: was a lot. Of, oh, of course, of course. 400 pound people spread across you know, the world. Um, but looking ahead, who knows? I mean, look how effective that was, right? So mm-hmm. we opened a kettle of fish. Right.
3: So when we're talking about all these things, I mean, Marjorie, you just mentioned stoplights. When we're talking about Facebook, we're talking about news organizations. What kind of effort is there to to police all these different areas to stop mm-hmm. threats. It just seems so widespread and almost really unbelievable. Let
1: me, let me suggest. First, I think Scott ought to answer that question because I think he's the expert there. And then let me turn to an area that perhaps after break... We also need to pay really careful attention to that it's a lot easier to be able to deal with, and that's that we are one of the very few democracies, perhaps the only democracy I know of, whose election administration is done by partisan officials. Um, That means that voter purges and various other kinds of things that happen in local registration rolls can be done with partisan intent. Let me say that I'm sure that our own election officials are uh, absolutely professional with respect to this, but that um, having partisan election administration opens the door to the fact that, obviously, partisans hold particular aims for the results of a particular election, and if they have the ability to do something about it, they may. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And in answer to your question, it's, it's up to all of us. We all have a role to play. So we see some self-policing actions happening at Facebook, for example. They're going to try to show you know, who's paid for what political advertisement. That could also be called for in Congress. There's a bill pending, but we're not holding our breath that we're going to see anything like that happening before the uh, before the midterms here. Um, there has been action, though. We mentioned the information sharing. Uh, in January 2017, in the waning days of the Obama administration, Secretary Johnson also designated our voting machinery as critical infrastructure. Uh, believe it or not, up until that point, it wasn't. You'd think, what could be more critical to our democracy than the machinery we use to actually cast our votes and and to aggregate those uh, those votes? Um, but it was. So that's good news. Uh, that shows that that helps sharpen minds. We can now bring the power of the federal government to help with that. But historically elections have been matters of state and local control and rightly so. So now in this new era of national security threats uh, threats there's a tough balancing act we have to strike here and we're still trying to get it right frankly.
0: Mm-hmm. We're going to have to take a short break. Uh, we're talking about election security. We're, we're, we, if we've scared you in the first half of the program, we'll, we'll try to, maybe we'll try to make you feel a little bit better in the second Sorry about half of the program. Uh, we have Marjorie Hershey, a professor of political science at IU, and Scott Shackelford, a senior fellow at the Center for Applied Cybersecurity Research at IU. And we'd love to have you join us in the second half of the program. We'll be right back.
4: From the Milton Metz Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state Throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from The Herald Times along with WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. We're talking about election security today and trying to make sure that everybody uh, – we'd like for everybody to get out to vote, but we also want to talk about whether your vote's going to be secure or not. Our guests on the, uh, in the studio today, Margie Hershey, who's professor of political science at Indiana University and Scott Shackelford, senior fellow at the Center for Applied Cybersecurity. Security Research at IU. If you want to join us, 812 855 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area, news at org. if you want to send us a question, and if you want to follow us on Twitter and reach us there, at Noon Edition. Margie, you were talking about um, the election administration being partisan in these, in these elections. And I just I'm, I'm I want you to talk more about that, but I'm thinking in terms of like a local local election board has people from each party on it, so it's not uh, I mean it's it's a bipartisan part and it's not a nonpartisan group. It's a bipartisan group. So in a way, it's like you know the old mutually assured destruction situation <laughs> because you've got people who are keeping an eye on it. I mean, isn't that a positive aspect of having a local election board have people from both parties?
1: It's potentially positive if those bipartisan election boards are fully informed about what's going on and keep their finger in the pie all the time. The reason that we have this is a wonderful example of the unintended effects of of, uh, good intentions reforms. Um, We, as a result of democratization impulses throughout the 1800s and 1900s, we have what's known as a long ballot. Uh, We elect everybody in the United States. States. We elect the coroner. We elect the surveyor, mm-hmm. even if some of us don't have a clue what those officials do um, and therefore have a very difficult time being informed about them. The result is that we elect county clerks who have authority over elections. We elect the Secretary of State of the states uh, who almost always have authority over the elections within the state. Um, The result is that we have some control over uh, the security of the registration rolls. Now, when we register to vote, everybody knows that sometimes people move and uh, we aren't required to inform the, the election registration office that we've moved And so voting rolls are highly inflated. That is not a problem. I know this will come as a shock to a lot of people. But um, the voting registration rolls are just what gives us a permit to come in and vote if we come in and vote. We don't count how many registrations there were on Election Day. We count how many votes there were for each side. Now, it's certainly possible that somebody who is in Bloomington and then moves to Boulder, Colorado, Could vote in Bloomington by absentee and in Colorado by in person vote. We find very little evidence of that. We find, in fact, we have enough trouble given the low turnout rates in the United States to get people to vote once, much less (laughs) twice. And um, the studies that have been done in contrast to all these images of, you know, people, dead people voting in Chicago and, you know, massive quantities of people coming in who are non-citizens to vote are simply the same kind of, of uh, phantasms that we have when people talk about the old-time cigar-chomping political bosses in smoke-filled rooms still controlling elections places. They've been gone for decades, folks. They just don't exist anymore. So what we've got is efforts to try to purge voter registration rolls to try to eliminate people who are no longer there that are extremely difficult to do and that can have partisan intent. If you uh, take a look at a voter registration roll that is undoubtedly hugely inflated, it may have three times as many names as actual um, eligible voters in your area, and you say, okay, we're going to take a look at this particular data set, and we're going to eliminate anybody on it who seems to be registered somewhere else, and it turns out that that particular data set comes from a partisan organization, you can really skew the results of the voter purge. And this happens in many states many times. There's every reason why if we have a partisan official in charge of these purges and if he or she has a partisan intent, which, forgive me, most of us do, um, this is going to happen.
2: And just building off that briefly, I I would say, uh, just echoing the sentiment there, but we need to do more to secure those voter registration systems, right? So Illinois was compromised, their voter registration system was, back in 2016. Again, there's no evidence that polling places or addresses or anything like that was messed with, uh, but that could happen in the future. And if you can imagine that kind of micro-targeting we were talking about before the break, if you change, oh, it looks like you move from this address to this address, you've got to go two miles that way, talk about depressing turnout uh, quickly, right? So we got to do more to make sure that these voter registration systems are as secure uh, as we can make them. Mm
1: -hmm. And in that light for everybody who is listening, all you need to do is to go to a website. (coughs) Excuse me. We ought to post that website that will let you look up your own voter registration and make sure it's still valid. And if I were you, everybody listening, I would do exactly that.
3: You mentioned earlier that federally, there's not much oversight over elections. And you said that's a good thing. Um, Why do you believe that? It just seems like maybe we could correct some of these issues and have you know, a more uniform role, a more uniform rule about voter purging and IDs oh, yeah. and all of those things.
2: No, to be clear, actually, in the summer of 2016, I did an op ed for the Christian Science Monitor, where I actually called for voting machinery to be reclassified okay. as critical infrastructure. <laughs> so I'm actually on the opposite end of that. I do think there should be a federal role here, particularly for DHS to work closely with election officials across the country to share the cyber threat data in a more productive way than it has been so far. Um, That's not to say that we have to federalize elections across the country. We can find a happy medium. We're very good at that um, in this country. But I do think there needs to be a large and growing role to at least share this national intelligence uh, information with local officials as soon as it becomes available.
3: Okay, Can you talk a little bit about the Secured Elections Act and and what that is? Sure. So this
2: is a this is a bill pending in the in the Senate right now. Uh, the history of this is that Congress has done a little bit since 2016 to help secure elections going forward, but not a lot. There was an appropriation earlier this spring of 380 million dollars um, to help. This is part of the Help America Vote Act funding we talked about earlier. States purchase more recent, up-to-date voting machines. That's a down payment; doesn't get us very far. There's a new piece of legislation uh, that is called the Secure Elections Act, pending in the Senate. It has a number of bipartisan co-sponsors, which is a good sign, and it would do some encouraging stuff, right? So it would, for example, make sure that every uh, vote that is cast across the country would incentivize states to rely on paper ballots to do that, right? So it would offer some carrots to make that happen, and not just sticks there. It would encourage security audits and the adoption of basic cybersecurity standards for voting machine manufacturers. There's only a handful of those across the country and they don't have that many employees. For example, the biggest one makes in a day what uh, makes in a year what Google makes in a day. Right, so I mean, these when they're up against foreign nation states, you know, good luck. So we need to have a helping hand there. Uh, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, for example, is really good at creating standards for a lot of stuff, including cybersecurity. Right, so they can do more to help uh, these voting machines manufacturers and these state and local election officials make sure that we're buying secure stuff as well. And this bill would help with that too. Um, again, so far there's only sponsors. There hasn't been an official vote yet, and it hasn't gotten very far in the House. Uh, but at least it's getting some traction. My hope is that it'll move forward quickly.
3: You you mentioned this $380 million, and that was something I know came up last week as we were talking about all this Russian interference. Democrats were trying to pass something to get more money for the election system, and Republicans said, no, 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 we don't don't need this. We're already fully funding it and have been for years. What's your take on
2: that? I guess that depends on your definition of fully funding, right, Um, and what the budgetary priorities here should be. I, for one, think there should be no higher priority when we're talking about our democracy than defending it. When we flip a light switch, we expect the lights to come on. When we open a tap, we expect water to come out. And when we touch a screen or fill in a bubble to elect our leaders, we want that to be free from foreign entanglements, right? Um, So I think we do need to spend more, frankly. That doesn't necessarily have to be throwing billions and billions of dollars at the problem. So, for example, the Secure Elections Act includes what's called a bug bounty program. And this is a program to offer little bits of basically rewards to people that find bugs in a Election systems across the country and turn those into officials. In a, it's, a, it's a way to kind of crowdsource basically defending democracy. This has been tried by the private sector for a long time. Uh, DHS and even the Department of Defense have done this off and on. This would institutionalize it and apply it to elections, and that could help too.
0: If you have comments or questions about uh, our election system and how secure it is, please give us a call at 812 here in Bloomington or outside of the Bloomington area. You can call 1 877 285 9348. You can also join the show at news at Indiana Public Media dot org. You can send us an email there or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I want to switch gears just slightly from maybe security to fairness, although security or, or um, cyber infrastructure comes into this. And I want to talk about redistricting and gerrymandering. And as a, <laughs> uh, when we talk about the fairness of our election system, you know, we have a, that, there's a partisan system that sets the, the districts now. So Margie, could you just talk about how that came to be and what we need to do to reform that system?
1: Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, We have had what's called gerrymandering. Actually, it would be appropriately pronounced gerrymandering because it's after uh, Elbridge Gerry, who um, drew local districts in Massachusetts um, more than two centuries ago, one of which looked like a salamander. So uh, it's been called a gerrymander ever since. Um, When we have partisan control of elections, Um, then we inevitably invite people to try to pursue their interests through their partisan control. And we have uh, partisan control of the redrawing of election lines. When uh, the Supreme Court said that we ought to have one person, one vote, what a concept, um, that resulted in the rule that every time we have a census, every 10 years, the state legislatures or the states generally have to redraw the election district lines for both Congress and state legislatures. Um, for the for in in every case um, that. Resulted in most states naturally, since it's the state legislature that makes the rules, the state legislatures looked at this and said, Why give this to anybody else? We're a majority in the state legislature. We'll still be a majority when we can redraw the legislative district lines and we can redraw them to favor our candidates um, that that sounds uh, you know a um, pretty venal, but b Pretty basic and logical. Um, Most of us, I think, would probably think the same way. So that means that since that time, we've had state legislatures controlling the drawing of district lines in the great majority of states. When we have states that have moved from state legislative drawing of district lines to independent commissions or other nonpartisan or a partisan commissions, We have seen a great increase in the number of competitive districts in those states. California is an excellent example that moved from legislative uh, redrawing of district lines to an independent commission. And all of a sudden, there's more electoral competition in California. Whoa. Um, That's a very small-D Democratic thought. But the problem is what we need to do is to convince the state legislative majorities that it would be a good idea for them to let their opponents have a fair shot at winning their seats. Good luck with that.
0: Well, can you – I'm under the assumption that technology – has made this a far more sophisticated process in oh, be, yeah. being able to sort of skew the lines, so can you talk about that a little bit
1: you can You can draw a district that is so perfect for your party that you pick up one house here and one house there. There are limits to this. Um, The the concept is called packing and cracking. Um, What you want to do is to take your opponent's supporters and either pack them into one legislative district so that they only elect one representative rather than several, Or crack that group of your opponent's supporters into a whole series of legislative districts, as was done right here with the Indiana legislature. Monroe County is a part of five state legislative districts. Now, Monroe County is really important, and I think we're the most important county in Indiana, but to divide us up into five different legislative districts is pure partisan nonsense.
0: Actually, five Um, House districts and two Senate districts. Yeah, so which uh, there are seven. We <laughs> have know? seven legislators that <laughs> represent parts of Monroe
1: County, which so. quite obviously dilutes the strength of the majority in Monroe County, which is large D Democratic. Um, when you have a situation like that, where you can do that with such precision, um, that also means that you have the tools that you can be reasonably fair about drawing congressional district and state legislative district lines that follow other kinds of values. The Supreme Court has long said keeping certain communities of interest together is a really good thing so that they can get the kinds of representatives they want. Yeah, except for the fact that that encourages packing. Um, if we can say, all right, we've got all these wonderful computer experts like Scott, we can say, all right, give us a map that uh, keeps communities of interest together, that largely follows intact county lines so that we don't have Monroe County voting for seven district's, uh mm-hmm. representatives. And whatever other small-D democratic values we may have, You go do that, and then you uh, bring it to an independent commission, and they can say, looks good to me. Or uh, I think you've maybe put a little bit too little emphasis on communities of interest, so go back and up the use of that. It's really not difficult to do. The question is the political will. And that is quite obviously not going to come from the state legislatures. Um, They want to be reelected. They are ambitious. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. God only knows what they might do if they didn't care whether they were (laughs) reelected or not. But that means it's going to have to either come from the voters or independent groups of some kind who press for this kind of independent drawing of district lines. And let's face it, it's not going to come from the voters. You and I are probably not going to just rise up out of our chairs right now and start pressing for independent drawing of district lines. We're going to go have lunch or whatever. And that means it has to be an organized effort to do.
3: Well, Indiana had that redistricting committee that last year or the year before remember they i know even the league of women voters was giving input mm-hmm. on that mm-hmm. and it didn't really it didn't really go anywhere it seemed like they had some sort of consensus but then it didn't the even get called the, out of committee yeah, right I,
0: I shouldn't yeah i think there was a legislative study committee or something but i don't and i, I shouldn't say any more cuz i don't really know but i know there, that there was news about it it was it was discussed
1: whenever we expect the state legislative majority party to pass a set of rules that makes competition for their majority more likely, we are expecting the tooth fairy.
3: <laughs> Scott, I want to ask you, do you think when we're even talking about election security, do you feel like that's that par- has become a partisan issue?
2: I hope not. Uh, but more and more things are, which is really unfortunate. As I said, the Secure Elections Act at least has a number of bipartisan co-sponsors. We're seeing more of that in the Senate, obviously, than we are in the House right now. Hopefully after the midterms, maybe that calculus on the part of a lot of our elected officials might start to change. But I think this last exchange does a great job of kind of broadening our conversation, right? Because when we talk about election security, it's not just voting machines and tabulation systems. It's information warfare. It's gerrymandering. It's helping our the generation that's coming up now in school be able to fought, uh, to be able to spot excuse me junk uh, news or fake news right um, And we can do more of that frankly that's one reason that we're uh, co-hosting in September IU is with Australia National University an event at IU's Advancement Center in DC so kind of our campus and air quotes there. Where we're going to bring together researchers from both universities to talk about how democracies around the world are trying to do a better job at making democracy harder to hack and the goal is to create a guidebook that we could share with other democracies that are, frankly, in the same boat. We're all uh, – and, frankly, it's leaking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank heaven you are. I, I think it's, it's absolutely wonderful that we are, we are contributing to this way in, in um, democratic practice. But let's be honest. When we have a situation in which the leader of an important uh, foreign power says that he favors one party's candidate over the other – And we have a situation in which we expect that party in Congress to vote to spend more money investigating whether that is so. We really are on a fool's errand.
0: If you have questions or comments, we have about 10 minutes to go. You can join our conversation at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area news at org. if you want to if you don't want to go on the air and want to send us a question or you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. I want to start talking about potential solutions a little bit. We've sort of sprinkled them in a little bit as we've talked about all the problems that we're facing. So, um, Margie, let's start with you. I mean, what, what would you like for – like as an individual voter, what can I do? What, what should I be supporting? What should I be asking my legislator, my congressman, my senator to do?
1: I think it's not enough for us as individuals to ask our representative to do something. I think what we need is a process by which um, organizations are developed and supported through funding and through energy that gain so much public attention that state legislatures can't ignore them. We've gotten campaign finance uh, legislation through the Congress only on a very few occasions when some super scandal has occurred. Um, but uh, in the 19, late 1960s and early 1970s, for example, we developed the um, the Federal Election um, Campaign Act that generated a series of rules that for a time did limit the amount of spending on campaigns, did um, produce transparency in the reporting of who was contributing that money until after a couple of decades, uh, various interests figured ways around it, uh, which doesn't mean that that's trivial. Those two decades were times when we had cleaner elections than we've had since that time. We can get back there not just through having a Watergate, which was one important stimulus to it. It also was the work of Common Cause, an organization, uh, an organized interest that generated a lot of publicity, did a lot of good research, raised a lot of money, worked in a variety of local districts all over the country to say, folks, here are some examples of a big problem. We need to get this done. And when they went to Congress, in fact, it got done. Um, we saw the same with McCain-Feingold as um As quickly as it was unraveled by the Supreme Court after that time, I think organized interests, as uh, little as many people think of them, are probably our best hope in this situation. Mm
2: got. Yeah. Though sometimes it starts with Rachel Carson, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, a, and a silent spring. Exactly. We, we need our cyber silent spring. Yeah, <laughs> That'd be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I think there's, I think absolutely uh, Margie's spot on as usual. Um, but if, if I had my wish list, you know, at the state level, uh, it would be wonderful if we had mandatory paper trails, if we had post-election audits, if we required every voting machine that we purchased to comply with the voluntary voting system guidelines that the advisory committee on voting puts out uh, we should do a lot of that stuff uh, that's not partisan uh, that's not you know a, there shouldn't be a lot of political pushback against any of that and it could get done frankly uh, quite quickly at the federal level the safe uh, and secure elections act is a good start that's not a magic bullet it's not a comprehensive solution as we've said this is a multifaceted issue but at least it's a good step in the right direction so i would hope that that would uh, pass sooner rather than later mm-hmm.
1: Yay, Scott. woo Cyber <laughs> peace. We got
3: a, a question here, and I, I can't find – oh, from Gene. And saying, I sat at a forum with Eric Cook, and he flat out said there's no gerrymandering in Indiana. How do we move forward when that's the perception and in the,
1: in the stance of some people? Well, so for one know. thing, somebody stands up uh, and uh, hopefully has some prepared data in advance to say – A, that is uh, a term that I will not use on public radio, and B, here is the evidence of it. Here is what the districts look like. Does that, you know, Mm -hmm. looking at a map of the districts, uh, does that look to you like something that is drawn in a reasonably equitable and fair fashion? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the people get away with a lot these days by simply making outrageous statements that are so outrageous that all the rest of us out here are thinking, holy cow, is that <laughs> right. possible? You know, and by the time we've figured out that that's pure nonsense, they've made another statement like that, and we're sitting there gasping again. Um, we just need to be prepared to say, no, in fact, uh, that's false. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So –
0: I want to ask has the media played a role in this by hmm. uh, by mm, asking for you know elections to be just you know over I mean, like these are horse races, and the night of the election we want to know who won every race we want to know it by eight o 'clock or eight thirty at night I mean it sounds like if we're going, if we were to actually go to paper ballots throughout the election cycle that it might although we have you know in monroe county we have a paper ballot system now and the election results do come out quicker but there's a paper trail is that i mean have we perfected the use of paper so we can do this just as fast or faster than we have before
1: we can we can certainly do optical scans very quickly i have to say that um the media are not fair to blame for this. Mm-hmm. If people weren't buying newspapers and watching uh, websites because they provide what people want to hear, then those media sites would not exist anymore because they wouldn't have an audience. So the problem, as Pogo said, uh, th- th- it is us. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think that the Herald Times has done a terrific job of doing some longer scale investigations of issues uh, like the opioid crisis and various other things. Here's an agenda for you, Bob. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. That's it.
0: And
2: Sarah. <laughs> right. And that's something that I, I, I couldn't agree more. I don't think we need less of it. We need more. We need more of that exact type of investigative journalism. And one way, for example, that Ukraine is trying to combat the fake news campaign, the information warfare that's been directed against that country for years now from Russia, is every night they have a version of the PBS NewsHour that goes on and debunks the fake news story of the day, kind of in real time, right? Um, and that's been pretty effective, actually limiting the spread of some of that information there. So I think, you know, we, we, we could learn from that as well.
1: I think it's often a problem in that um, people feel, some some parts of the public feel, oh, you know, I'm being criticized as being fake news. I'm, I'm being criticized as being partisan. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, uh, we'd be criticized no matter what. Mm-hmm. So you might as well get the information out there and just accept the criticism and just say, look, here are the data. I
2: think that's it. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank you both. It's been a been a pleasure, as always, even though the subject matter is kind of frightening. But it's been, <laughs> been great to have both of you on. Uh, Marjorie Hershey, a professor of political science at Indiana University, and Scott Shackelford, senior fellow at the Center for Applied Cybersecurity Research at Indiana University. I would suggest that both of you would probably say – Despite what you've heard today, go out and vote 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. That's exactly right. All right. Well, thank you both. And for Sarah Whitmire and engineer Mike Pashkash and producer Patrick McGurr, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.